talk about creative rebellion because um, I know that anybody who knows me sees me as a rebel. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that I've never seen myself as a rebel. Um, I've just seen myself as me. Mm-hmm. Um, and because the, I, I think, and it's actually the title of the show, but I think curiosity is an act of rebellion. Yeah. I think it's the ultimate act of rebellion because of exactly what you're saying. The Prussian schooling system trained us to do things by route, to memorize, to behave in a way that is acceptable, again, by these socially um, bound rules uh, and tells us not to think. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're trained not to think, not to question. And the, the willingness to be curious, to challenge, to think is, is the birthplace of art. It is the birthplace of rebellion for sure. Mm-hmm. So when you put that together in your context of creative rebellion, what is a creative rebellion? If you were to sort of summarize it, what is it for you? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of come in a roundabout way to that, yeah. to that answer. So um, about a, a year and a half ago, I gave a speech to the graduating students from Stanford. Uh, I'm not Stanford, actually. It was, um, uh, oh, my God, I'm, I'm losing my memory here. It was, on the, uh, it was a graduating design class. Right. And uh, in New York City. And um, it, it was Princeton. Sorry, I right. totally blanked on that. So with at Princeton, uh, this, gra- this uh, group was talking about, you know, the projects they're working on. They had a lot of luminaries from design, the design world from both the, you know, agency world as well as the uh, product design world. And I was, you know, brought in for kind of like a round table. And what was interesting to me, you know, is that these kids, you know, and they are kids around, you know, 19 to 21 years old that are about to graduate are brilliant. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they're, and they're full of like, I'm going to change the world and, you know, vigor and vim. And one of the things that I, um, I, I pointed out to them, you know, is that you have, I'm going to excuse my hands for a second. Like you have like this much ability, you know, incredible amounts of like capability. And then what happens is that you're going to go work for an Apple or a Google or, you know, Facebook or fill in the blank. And they're going to have a job description that's going to say like, we, oh, great, we want to hire you because you're brilliant, but we're going to take this much of your brilliance because your job description is this slice. Yes. And you're going to say that, no, 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 I can do all this. You know, there's all this, you know, and that's the reason why you hired me because, you know, I can do all this. Yeah, that's great. You're going to be doing this. And the problem, and the, and the reason why they do that, of course, you know, is that businesses are based upon the idea of roles and responsibilities. And yep. that you you have a certain role and responsibility within the construct of the overall organization, which I understand, and I, you know. But I told them, I said you should do that for a while, learn if you can handle that, and then get out and do your own thing. Get, you know, go whether it's doing a startup or being your own consultant or what have you, and then figure out if you want to stay within the machine or if you want to be servicing the machine from outside. Mm-hmm. So the the question for me though like within my own practice is I use the job description as a way to just basically anchor someone to come in for a conversation. Right. And then, and then during that process, I go, well, look, I'm going to assume you can do the thing we asked you for, but what else can you do? And almost like a Venn diagram between like what right. they're capable of doing and what the business needs. I find that sweet spot between the two things. Mm-hmm. And that way they're engaged. Suddenly they're like, Oh my, yeah, I can do that too. Cause they're learning they're using their talents and then the company gets three to four X 
the value of that person because now they're totally doing it in a different way. So that rebellion for me is the ability to unlock, you know, that particular, you know, potential within a person to allow them to be okay with expressing themselves because so many people come into work and there's this immediate feeling of like needing to fit in. Mm -hmm. you know? And so like, you know, you'll notice like, you know, I, I wrote about this in my book, getting into an elevator with a bunch of bankers and there's a, you know, within our building, one floor with bankers. And I walked in, they're all talking and I walked in wearing, you know, like a Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds t-shirt, you know, um, I was unshaven, I had jeans and boots and they're all, and that was my uniform, right? And sure. it is a uniform. And, and then they're all wearing the exact same uniform though, variant colors of blue, shades of blue, you know, Oxford shirts tucked into khaki pants and, you know, in a loafers, you know, essentially. And the same haircut. Now they're Asian, African-American, white, but they're essentially the same exact mm -hmm. format. And literally almost like something happened when I walked into the elevator, they all stopped talking. You know, like they were like, and then as soon as I got off of my floor, I could hear the door shutting and they were talking again. And I realized we're so tribal. Yes. And look, and by the way, if you want to wear, you know, like a, a cool Tom Wolf like suit, you know, it's all white, more power to you, man, go do it. You should, you know, but do it because you're choosing to do it, you know, do it, you know, because you're not being forced to do it. But the problem is most societal environments, whether it's school and we're taught this in school, all the way through um, companies, is that we tend to mirror the boss. And if cool. the boss dresses a certain way, we, and talks a certain way, we do that. And so there's a difference between fitting in and, uh, and belonging. You Fast know, difference. Right, and so fitting in, you're suppressing who you are. Belonging is like within my particular design group, they can come in dressed any way they like any, and, and do whatever they want because that's, again, why I hired them. I hired the totality of the human being and one part of them is the thing that they're doing for a job, but their actual, you know, purpose in life is beyond their job title. Yeah. You know, like they're more than their job title in the company they work at. But it, you know, it's interesting, John, because um, I, you know, I'm old enough that I can remember when, if you were a leader, for instance, you were supposed to be a generalist, you had to know all the different things. Mm -hmm. And then came the world of niche where you had yeah. to have this incredible specialty and you, you know, no, nobody has any value if they're a generalist and you gotta be a niche. And I, to me, yeah. they're polarities. I, I, and I think yeah. polarities are bullshit, personally. Yeah. They're polarities. And what I think is very simply that you have to stay curious about whatever it is and let yourself be guided by that. Sure, if you want a specialty because you, you, you are in love with it, fantastic. Mm -hmm. But as you said, when that, that person is hired with all these skills and then given that, then what happens to all this stuff? Yeah. It, it becomes repressed and denied and repressed and denied. And then that part of their soul is shaved off, mm -hmm. you know, in order to now pay the mortgage because, you know, my wife wants me to have a better house and we want to, we want to drive a better car and blah, blah, blah. We want to move to a better area. Uh, 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 you know, and I think I should because my mom is this or my dad is that. Yep. You know, hold on a sec. Where is your soul? Where did your soul go to? That for me is always the concern. Mm -hmm. and, and I know, you know, I'm a leadership guy. I get that. 
Mm-hmm. But when when somebody asked me, I was asked this come yesterday when I was being interviewed, and I said, they said, who do you work with? And I said, honestly, and they said, yeah. I said, I work with dragons. And they said, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, I don't work um, with wolves. Yeah, I don't yeah. work with sharks. I don't work with eagles. Mm-hmm. You think of those as high high creatures, but I work with dragons. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, okay, that's interesting. Tell us what a dragon is. I said, well, I'll tell you a little story because this is a story I made up and told my granddaughter. And he goes, what's that? I said, so she's sitting with me and she said, I says, do you, do, you, do you know about dragons? And she says, yeah, gee, dad, I saw a movie with them. In. And I said, yeah. Mm-hmm. I said, would you like to be a dragon? She goes, no. And I said, why? She goes, they're scary. I said, oh. I said, do you think you've ever seen a dragon? She goes, no, gee, dad, I would know a, gee, I would know a dragon. They can't. Mm-hmm. I, I said, oh, are you sure you've never seen one? She goes, I would recognize them. I said, I think you've seen many of them. She said, what do you mean? I said, they're hiding all the time. She goes, mm-hmm. gee, dad, they're too big. They can't hide behind something. I said, no, no, it's not how they hide. She goes, well, how do they hide? I said, well, here's the trick. Dragons are never born into their own families. She goes, what do you mean? I said, dragons are always born into other creatures' nests. She goes, what do you mean? Hmm. I said, well, sometimes they're born into a nest of eagles and they grow feathers so they look like an eagle. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're born in the ocean and they grow fins so they look like a shark. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're born as caterpillars and they look like caterpillars. But they're never going to become butterflies because they're supposed to be dragons. Mm-hmm. She goes, well, how do they do that? I said, well, when dragons are young, they morph because everybody tells them they're supposed to fit in. But they always feel like they don't belong. Even though they fit in, they feel like they don't belong. In fact, they're so good at fitting in that a lot of people are attracted to them. They're very dynamic, but they have this thing inside them that the world tells them to shut off, and it's called their dragon. They push it down and they hide it. Mm-hmm. And then something happens where who they were, that eagle gets burned off, and there's an opportunity for the dragon to be born. Mm-hmm. And some people cover it up and mm-hmm. go back to being an eagle. Right. or being a wolf, or being a bear, or being whatever it is. And some people tear it off, mm-hmm. and they become dragons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she said, are people dragons? And I said, <laughs> I said, some people are. Yeah, That's who I work with. It's that act of saying, I'm willing to tear off right. who I was yeah. to reveal what's inside that I don't even know what it is yet. Yeah. But that is the dark moment. That's going into that cave. Oh, yeah. That's the thing that terrifies people. And oh, I get yeah. it. I was talking to a very good friend of mine, actually, in LA yesterday. I was being, well, he was the one interviewing me. And he said, how do you get people to do that? Because I, I can't imagine them even having that conversation with themselves. Oh, yeah. And I said, that's why I don't work with everybody. Yeah. That's why I only work with six to eight people a year. Mm-hmm. Because there, is, there are not people brave enough to admit that. I said, there's a ton of dragons walking around. Mm-hmm but they're disguised from themselves. They're hiding from themselves. And the act of rebellion in this context is, mm-hmm. is this willingness to look into that dark place and see the dragon looking back at you mm-hmm. that is you. Dove, I think you have your, new, your latest book. I do. That's what my latest book is going to be I on. Mean, I mean, it totally, that reverberates. It's awesome. You know, and, and to your point, I think there are dragons, and the dragons that do make it are oftentimes the entrepreneurs like you know, Steve Jobs. Yeah. Or Elon Musk. 
Yep. And you know, the, the tone and timbre of any company is often driven by the dragon at the top. And, but most of them are not dragons to your point. They're, they wish they were dragons, but they're oftentimes terrified of being shown that they're not. So they, there's this imposter syndrome of like hiring people who are just a little bit less talented than the person below them. Yes. You know, and, and then you end up with this, you know, pyramid of mediocrity. Um, the, the thing about someone revealing their own inner dragon is a form of constructive de- uh, destruction, right? I mean, like, absolutely, they, they have to be okay with potentially losing it all, losing their job, losing their security. Now, the, now the great, you know, the Goethe thing about it, right? Like, you know, is that when you throw yourself to the universe, it often catches you. But most people do not want to take that. And, you know, and entrepreneurs by very nature are dragons, I think, um, because they're risking everything to start something. And this is the innovator's dilemma with most companies is the thing that made the company extraordinary was the dragon who started it, who almost immediately gets bought out of the company or pushed out of the company. And then the operational people end up coming into it. And then they, they try to maintain the original spirit of the dragon, but it fades over time. Because by its very nature, the dragon needs to be innovative and, dis- and disruptive, right? Yeah. It and has to breathe fire onto whatever it sees. Exactly. But the companies don't want that because that screws up with the bottom line and keeping the lights on. And, and so what happens is that I think that a lot of, you know, to st- use your metaphor, the dragons get suppressed or the potential dragons get suppressed. And they go, well, I'm getting paid every two weeks and I get insurance and um, I, should be, I should be thankful for that. You know, that, and I shouldn't be asking for more than that and get into a state of like going, I'm going to accept what is because, you know, that's what everybody else is doing. And, and then over time, to your point, I think you just forget you were ever a dragon, you know, yep. and I, I love your metaphor. and I love the, the way that you structured it around your granddaughter. I think even in a way, if you could even do an adult version, you know, of that book and then a kid's version, you know, mm-hmm. like an illustrated kid's version, that would be awesome. I'll I'll uh, I'll tag you that I've actually made some videos on it. I'll yeah. tag you on LinkedIn. It's it's it, I love the metaphor because I've actually this is what I've been working on for twenty odd years about yeah. understanding how to actually talk about this actualization path mm-hmm. that requires us to tear off the flesh of who we were. Yeah, and I think that that is by its very nature the path of creativity of art. I, I don't know if I told you this story, and if I did, you can tell me, but um, I was invited to speak for a, um, what do you call incubator group here mm-hmm. in Vancouver uh, for, for kids. So mm-hmm. these are kids that are like 17, 18, at the end of school. Did I tell you about this? No, you have not. And so they asked me to come and speak, and I said, sure, it's in town, you know, it's free and I'll do it because I'm in town, all right. And I said, but one condition, and they said, what? I said, I can talk about whatever I want. And they said, oh, yeah, what, you know, anything you want. Cool. So, I, you know, I, no script. I want to go in and just be off the cuff with them. Mm-hmm. And so I walk in and I said, listen, I know you're all here because of whatever you're here for. And what I want you to know is the world is going to tell you what you should do because you're good at it. Yeah. And I said, just because you're good at it doesn't mean you should do it. Mm-hmm. right so that's yeah. the first thing if it doesn't set your you're on fire don't do it i said as an example when i was a kid i was an artist my art was in galleries i you know i drew from before i could write 
Mm-hmm. So everybody knew I was good at art. My mother used to brag about my art. I have a friend sit down so I could draw them. And everybody thought I would be an artist, but I don't draw. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I rarely draw. And this girl interrupts me and she puts her hand up and she goes, don't you miss it? I'm an artist, don't you miss it? And I took a pause for a moment and I said, nope. Hmm. To miss it would mean I think about it. I don't. Hmm. Carried on giving the rest of the presentation, but that's, you know, that's wobbling in the back of my head for a while there. Yeah, yeah. At the end of it, we, you know, they, I finished, they give me a round of applause, and I said, hold on, I want to stop. I want to thank this young lady. And they, she said, why? And I said, because of your question. And she mm-hmm. goes, what? I said, you've asked me about, do I miss art? Mm-hmm. Do I miss being an artist? And she said, yeah. I said, and I told you I don't, right? And she goes, yeah. And I said, I now know why. And she goes, why? I said, do you know the story of Michelangelo and the statue of David? And she goes, no. Like, you know, she's young. She doesn't know. Mm-hmm. I said, well, apparently, I don't know if it's true, but apparently Michelangelo was asked, how did you create such a magnificent piece of work Mm-hmm. in the in the structure of david and michelangelo answers i didn't mm-hmm. david was always in the marble i just chipped everything else away yeah and i said i really appreciate you asking i'm getting choked up i said i really appreciate you asking me mm-hmm. because i'm still an artist and mm-hmm. she said what do you mean i said my entire job now is to chip away everything that is not the masterpiece that is below Mm. That is what I do. I reveal the dragon. Yeah. Everything else away. And the problem with that is, is there's an identity crisis because now certainly about halfway through is Mm -hmm. I'm no longer marble, but I'm not David. Or Mm -hmm. as I always say, you're no longer a caterpillar. Because I'll ask people, well, what's a butterfly before it's a butterfly? And they'll say a caterpillar. I go, no, that's actually not true. Mm -hmm. There's a middle phase where it's in the pupilla. Yeah, yeah. And what is it there? And they go, I don't know. And you go, it's soup. If you took a scalpel yep. and opened it up, it's just soup. Right, right. And that, that phase there, that's the hardest piece. Yep. It's, it's not quite David, but it's not quite marble. It's something else. Yeah. And that's the artistry. And, and uh, that's why I see artistry and creativity as a courageous act of curiosity. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll build on what you just said. There was a very famous uh, conceptual artist in LA in Venice named John Baldessari. And he died last week at the age of 88. And um, hugely influential um, artist for a lot of people. And he taught. He was like six foot seven, a bear of a man. Um, and he came out, you know, the 60s. And what he did, probably that put him on the map initially, is he took. Uh, he'd been painting from like the 1940s through like the 1950s and early 60s. And he took all of his paintings and he goes, am I doing anything different? Am I doing anything that's meaningful here that hasn't been done before? He decided he, he was not. So he took all of his paintings, which were like hundreds of them, to a crematorium and had them incinerated as an art piece in of itself. Wow. And, and actually had a plaque made you know, with the date of when he started painting them and when he finished painting them. And they actually then had a box with all the ashes from the paintings. And supposedly he would occasionally take some of the ashes and put them in food, like, you know, cookies and serve them to people in the sixties, you know? Um, And so what was, but what was interesting is that his premise was no more boring art. 
right. you know, that he would, from this point forward, expand the notion of what art was beyond, you know, oil and acrylics and into his life, you know, and very similar to what you're talking about, the definition of art is expanded beyond, you know, the traditional means of making an image on a flat surface into an integration into one's existence. Yes. And then if you are living as an artist, as a creative person, the painting or the design or the business or whatever you're doing is almost an artifact of you being in a state of flow with what you do that's meant yes. for you. So the point, I, it's funny because there's a part, part in my book called Drawing the Dragon. Speaking of dragons, right. because when I was a kid, I loved drawing dragons. And it's right. funny that you mentioned that and I'm born the year of the dragon. And um, as part of that, I would draw the dragon attacking a knight. And as I'm drawing the dragon, I'm really into it. Like I'm a kid and I'm like, you know, and, and it's the feeling of like the marker going down and the red fire coming out of the mouth and hitting the, the knight. And then I'd switch points of view and I'm the knight and I'm fighting the dragon, you know, like, and, and I can feel the heat coming on. Yep. And, and at the end of all this, you know, my grandmother would come in and I would have like a floor filled with drawings of dragons and knights and almost zero recollection of having made them. Yeah. Like, you know, the thing you is just- it's a, Right. The artifact was the drawing. Now, what happens over time, of course, is that people will go, oh, that's a good drawing. You should do more like that. And then your mindset switches from one of like being in the moment of creating and that becomes, that's actually your, your reward into like, no, I have to now make something to make someone happy. Oh, no. now I need to make something to make money. So the very thing that actually you did out of pure joy and out of pure creative flow now it gets kind of changed, you know, perverted a little bit. And then, and I think this is where we all lose it. Like we, we, we go into a business ostensibly on some level because we, we have some liking of it. Mm -hmm. And then over time you start to forget what was it that you liked about that thing, you know, a lot, I find. You know, it's, it's almost like a relationship with work is not too dissimilar to a relationship with your spouse or your, your loved one. Um, at a certain point, you start to take it for granted, mm -hmm. you know, like, and you don't remember, you have to remind yourself, what was it originally that sparked me to this thing to begin with? And like any bad relationship, if it's no longer working for you, you have to figure out whether you need to stay in it or not. You know, and in, in the metaphor for like business is like, should I, you know, stick it out at this company or should I leave? You know, and that's, you know, equivalent to almost like, you know, breaking up with somebody. So there's no doubt about it. I mean, yeah. as I said before, in, in the, when I'm working with a, with a private client, um, I will always say it's better for you to come in with an identity crisis. And they say, why? And I said, because you're going to go through one in our work. Yeah. Right. You are going yeah. because you are going to, that's what identity crisis is. You are going to question everything. Yeah. You are going to question your marriage. You're going to question how you are as a parent. You're going to question, um, the work you're in and whether it's fulfilling you that yeah. is the point yeah and then you go well i don't you know i'm good with my marriage i said listen i'm not saying it's a bad marriage mm -hmm. and i'm not saying you should leave it but if you don't question it you're not going to up your game yeah divorce is an option every single day of my marriage mm -hmm. why because i do not want to take my bride for granted for a second yeah and it's an and it's and I know that divorce is an option every single day for her. Yeah, right. So yeah. I better keep my game up here because yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. this is like whoa. Hold on, yeah. I, I, 
this is this is a spectacular woman mm-hmm. that I have to earn every day. Oh yeah. Right. And, and like, you know, she's my business partner, you know, like you with your creativity, you know, mm-hmm. she's my, she's my creative partner. So I get it. Yeah. And I think it's really important that we, I think it's so easy for us to get, uh, as the saying goes, um, we think we're in a groove, but what we're actually in is a rut and a rut is nothing more than a shallow grave. Oh yeah. 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 Totally. I mean, it's interesting. Like, you know, the thing that, um, you know that my wife and I do every year um, is we actually write down what we're trying to accomplish in the next year. And, and it's interesting. This is the power of, you know, creatively projecting into the future. And, and I'm not talking like the secret here, like, you know, where you, no. you can, but I'm talking literally the power of programming your mind, of so, you know, cause we actually wrote down things uh, in this notebook and then we'll set it and forget it. And then a year later, we'll go and we'll look at it because we're writing the next year's and we we'll realize we've accomplished 75 to 80% of what we had decided to do, which we had forgotten we were even trying to do. Exactly. So, you know, it was crazy, you know, because like, like why, you know, because we put in crazy, you know, like aspirational things. We're going to get a new house, you know, right. like, you know, like, and it's going to be you know, on the side of a mountain with, you know, water nearby. Guess what? That happened. Yeah. And, and the crazy, but the thing is, you know, creatively, I have to be in alignment with my wife in order to make that work. Um, yeah. and, and then conversely, if I'm not in alignment or in harmony with my wife, then I can't do it. You know, it's almost impossible to get it to work. Uh, and to your point, you know, the reason why, you know, I think that what you said is powerful about like at any point you have the option of divorce and she has the option of divorce is that that's how you stay in a healthy relationship is that you give people the uh, freedom, like the land to roam on and say, well, here's the boundaries of the land, you know, and if you're going to jump over the fence, let's talk about it, but you're free to do whatever the hell you want. And, and uh, probably almost everything I've learned as a manager came from that mentality. Like I'm assuming when I'm working with talented people that they're brilliant and you have to prove to me that you're not. Yeah, and, you know, versus the opposite, which most people tend to get, kind of go, well, I am going to look at you and micromanage and make sure that you're doing your work. I find in general, if you give people trust and you give them that, 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 uh, that opens up creativity, you know, going back to it as a collaborative state, because now it's not competitive. The moment you have control, it becomes competitive, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it reduces the, this, the field of possibility for doing something amazing. But the more you give away power, the more you get. I, and this is the the great truth that I have learned um, about creativity, but that requires sublimation of one's own ego. Uh, ah, the, that's a whole other subject. Um, Let, let's get into that in the next yeah. part because we're gonna we're gonna take a, <laughs> we're gonna take a quick break and talk, and, and because this is the part where we get into what we because this show is called Curiosity Bites. Yeah. So we have what we call our mastication round. <laughs> okay. Um, now I did say mastication. Okay, mm-hmm. a, a mastication round. I heard you. You get to pick a number between one and twenty, and I'm going to ask you one of these strange mastication questions. So between one and twenty, pick a number. Thirteen. Thirteen. Your favorite word. What is your favorite word, John Couch? Um, recently, it's been petrichor. Petrichor. Tell me about that word. It's the um, smell of the land and the roads after a recent rain. 
you know, wow. it's a specific scent, you know, that just when it stops raining and you can, you walk outside and everything is fresh and clean, that's Petrichor. And I got that from my daughter because she had it, um, I walked into her bathroom and she had it written the definition on a card on posted to the mirror. And I'm like, Petrichor, that's an awesome that's an awesome sounding name. And, and then she told me what it meant. And I was like, oh, that's even better. Mm. So, so Petrichor. Wow. Yeah, that, that's very cool. Yeah. All right. Another one. One to sure. 20. Uh, we'll go with, um, well, you know, I'll go with six. Six. Uh, do you believe in any conspiracy theories? And if you do, which ones? <laughs> No, I don't. Um, I'm, I'm extremely dubious in most conspiracy theories only because it requires way too much coordination from too many people uh, to, to make it happen. Like, you know, you know, as we were watching comedy last night and one of the comedians was talking about the flat earthers. Yes. And, and you know, like how they believe that it's really a flat earth and there's like this mountain range of like mountains around the edge of the earth. And, you know, and it, and the thing that's ludicrous about it or any kind of conspiracy like that is that it would require everybody to be in on it on some level. Like every ship captain would have to pretend that, oh yeah, the earth is round and I didn't run into a mountain range. And so I find in general that, um, you know, conspiracy theories are, are ridiculous and, and they tend to be propagated heavily on the internet through misinformation. So I tend to be very, um, again, going back to rebellion, questioning almost everything that I see. But it's interesting because in many ways, isn't that the root of a conspiracy theory? Yes. Right? The conspiracy yes. theory is the willingness to question. Um, yeah. and, and there are many conspiracy theories that have been proven to be true. Today, I know. I right? know. But which is, which is the, the, the terrifying thing about conspiracy theories in general is that uh, there's the occasional case where it's true and the exception, you know, then throws everything into question. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and again, you know, the reason I, I put that question in in with domestication round was because, again, it, it's something that we get curious about, yeah. um, you know, uh, and there are things that I think that there are things you could get away with 40 years ago, you can't get away with today, but there are things you can get away with today that you couldn't get away with 40 years sure. ago. Yeah, it's, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating time for that in and of itself. I think it's propaganda. I think that there's a huge amount of propaganda towards like, we're number one, you know, like, well, based on what? Have you ever traveled to another country? Do you speak another language? No, but we're number one. And almost every country that does that, you know, has the unthinking kind of nationalism, uh, usually comes out of the fact that they haven't traveled, that they, they have not met with other people in other countries and understand that we're all human. Um, you know, and I do think that if there is any conspiracy in my mind, it is one of uh, conformity. You know, like there's a, a need for nation states and governments to make sure that they don't have people questioning too much the doctrine right. they're given. So, you know, probably on an uber, you know, conspiracy, like if, if it's a conspiracy about like flat earth kind of French stuff, no. If it's a conspiracy about the fact that we've all been programmed since childhood to assume that life has to be a certain way yeah i think that's the ultimate conspiracy you know like yeah this the is the nation exactly yeah. so i think the indoctrination and, and i think it's when you suddenly 
wake up from that, when you release the dragon, that you're like, holy crap, why have I been ensla enslaving myself into this, you know, complete false construct? You know, and I do believe that is a huge conspiracy. So maybe I'm, I'm backtracking on that. But I, you know, um, <laughs> you're backpedaling all the way into conspiracy it's now. Like, now I'm a conspiracist.